chapter 13. I'll be reading our text this morning, Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, instructive, and by His Holy Spirit power-giving word to our hearts and minds. Father, help me unfold what's here, nothing more, nothing less. Let us see the hand of the Holy Spirit on the writer to the Hebrews. In his word for us this morning, to the glory of your name, but oh, let us see it, not merely with our eyes, but with the eyes of our hearts, that we will find contentment and the peace that surpasses all understanding in your presence through the gospel of your eternal, wonderful, Son, who for us and for our sake became man and suffered and died and rose again to justify us before your presence. Amen. There's an old Jewish story about a man from Hungary going to his rabbi and he says, Rabbi, you got to help me and give me some counsel. I can't take it any longer. There are nine of us living in one room. What do I do? And the rabbi said, I want you to take your goat and bring it into the room with you. And the man got angry, but the rabbi said, no, just do what I say and come back in one week. A week later, he comes back and he is very angry at the rabbi. It's much worse than it was before. It stinks in there. And the rabbi says, just do what I say. Go home. Release the goat outside and come back in a week. And he came back the next week. Rejoicing. Life is beautiful. We enjoy every minute now with just nine of us in the one room. And we all know that's true. Just, just a proverb of life. It could go into the biblical proverb about wisdom of life, about how life works. Context, context. Not having too high of expectations brings contentment. Because there's that truth where contentment is a matter of perspective. More than it is of the circumstances one finds themselves in. But this is not mere, just basic human wisdom this morning in our text. The structure of these two verses it bears out this. Here's the command to all of us who love Jesus. Be content. But it doesn't leave it there. It gives the reason. And the reason is the perspective of God's promises to us. This is not just a nice thing. For some believers... To obey. It is a command to all of us to grumble constantly about our circumstances is to doubt the love 
and the goodness of our Heavenly Father. Being discontent is the sin of the children of Israel under Moses. And the writer to the Hebrews, way back, remember, had made that clear to us in chapter 3. God had just delivered them from hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt, and He was miraculously sustaining them with food and water. And they, in response as a whole, grumbled. It's fine, but where's the onion and where are the leeks? I want more tasty food. It was better back then. And the writer to Hebrews tells us, they fell in the wilderness because of their lack of faith. It was unbelief. And God's trustworthy, sustaining hand. This contentment that he's calling for in our text, it doesn't come naturally. This is supernatural. This is by the Holy Spirit and the written Word of God coming together in our hearts. It's rooted in the promises of God, which saving faith in its sanctifying aspect throughout our lives takes hold of those promises. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Philippians 4. I have learned in whatever circumstances I'm in, whatever situation in life, and he had some pretty nasty situations. I have learned to be content. We grow in it. We have to learn it. John Owen, in the 1600s, Puritan pastor and theologian, on his commentary to the Hebrews, this is what he says about this word contentment in this verse. Quote, Contentment is a gracious frame or disposition of mind. It's quiet and composed. And it is without three things. One, it's without complaining at God's providential disposals of our outward concerns. And two, it is without all envy at the more prosperous conditions of others. And three, it is without fears and anxious cares about future supplies. We live in this world and this world is not there to help us Christians be content. The world, the culture, the devil, and our own sinful natures, our flesh, is there to make us feel discontentment. All advertising and billboards and TV commercials and catalogs and YouTube commercials are constantly there to awaken within us discontent. You won't be contented or happy if you don't buy this product. As those who are in the world, but not of the world, we who believe are constantly desperate to look to the Word of God for our battle for contentment today in whatever circumstances we are in. So look again at the text. Notice the very first part of it. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. Loving money, looking to money, in other words, as the end, as the source of your happiness, is deadly. 
In the Bible, it ruined Balaam, it ruined Achan, it ruined Elisha's servant, Gehazi, it ruined Judas, Iscariot, and Ananias, and Sapphira. Jesus said that it was the worries, real worries, and the riches, and the pleasures of this life that are the thorns that come up and choke the work of the Word of God in a person's soul so that they don't bear fruit. And then Jesus warned, quote, Take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he went on to tell the story of the rich fool who planned to build bigger and bigger barns to store it all up for the temporal world. But he died that night. And then Jesus concluded it this way. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Greed, love of money. You worship in this sense when you love something the way that the writer means it. And we'll see the way that Paul means it. It means I look to that. I don't love it in the sense of help it out, or I love my neighbor because they're hungry and I feed them and do something benevolent. It means I love this meal because I want to devour it. It's, it's, I love it for what it can give to me. When you love money, that is a deadly poison. And the whole world mixed with our flesh is all out to get us to drink the poison daily. Hebrews chapter 13 verses 5 and 6 is the biblical strategy for fighting against that sin of discontentment, of loving the world and the things in the world and the pleasures of life more than God. So before I can do this later, do it now, we can do it now, because it does raise a huge question, okay? Be content with what, with what you have. But so before we look at the text and what he's driving us and to, to live by, it's a huge question. What does that mean? What do you mean be content? Well, I don't have a job. Should I just be content? I don't have any food at all. Do I, do I be content? Do I just mooch off others? In other words... Here's the question right now. Is it, is it wrong to seek to better our circumstances in this world through hard work? Through earning a promotion? Through starting and growing a business? And all of it bringing a higher and a higher income? Or should we seek to be totally unconcerned about buying clothes for our kids or about paying for school for our kids or about having a roof over our heads or about the food that we eat. Are we to just drift through life with no plans, no ambition, just living from hand to mouth and mooching off others? Okay, that's the question up against this text for a moment. Just feel the tension. It, not contradiction. It's a tension. Let's go to the Scripture. The Bible, it condemns laziness. It calls for hard work in order to provide for our needs and the needs of our families. 
I mean, I can read Scripture all day long here. I can read Proverbs all day long. I'm going to go to one right now. Proverbs 10, verses 4 to 5. The slack hand, meaning the lazy person, that slack hand and that laziness causes poverty. But the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer, smart, is prudent, meaning practically wise, is a prudent son. But he who sleeps in harvest, it's time to work, is a son who brings shame. And Paul, he, he strongly warns in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul writes, If anyone, and we know the context, because these people thought, Hey, why should I work? Jesus is going to come back any day. And my fellow Christians are supposed to be loving, so they'll feed me. That's what they, they have to do that. And Paul says to those who are able, if anyone is not willing to work, do not let him eat. So you've got to feel the balance. The Bible also goes on to warn, see, here's the other side, about the dangers, though, of wealth. Proverbs 11.4, riches do not profit in the day of wrath. But righteousness delivers from death. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. And Jesus shocked his hearers when he said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And Paul warned in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 8 to 10, and, and again, feel the balance. He said, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who, he doesn't say those who are rich, he knows there will be those who are rich. Get the word. Those who desire. They're driven to be rich. They fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. He's not done. He's, Why, Paul? For, here's his reason, the love of money. Okay. Same word the Hebrew writer uses in our text in verse 5 of chapter 13. Philarguria. Because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So, there's tension. We, we plan and are to plan money making in order to be obedient to God, to supply our needs. But our motive for seeking money is crucial. Because if we drift into putting money, things, all that money buys in life, future security, to, to present pleasures. If we put it in the place of God, meaning our trust, our faith is in money and what it can buy, then we've become idolaters. That's why Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money at the same time. And in the same way. In other words, you're either all about how do I position myself 
under God and the gospel so that I can get all that God is for me and he promises to me? Or how do I position my money to work for me? Because that will bring me real happiness. He says you cannot do both at the same time. If you're storing up treasures on earth, here's the key, instead of heaven, you'll lose it all. That's how Jesus talks. My, my six kids all know how they're raised in my house. And I say it because I care so much for their souls before God. Train them early. Just as a biblical principle. And say, that's the foundation. As you start to get a job as a teenager. And all through your life. Don't ever spend that first 10% on yourself. I try to give them more wisdom. As you grow and you get your school loans paid off. That 10% boom. Then, don't live on 90. Be smart. Throw another 10 or 15 into, within our culture so that your children later on aren't, have to support you and put it away. Wisdom. Wisdom where you place your heart. Now, we go back to our text. These verses, they are telling us the basic standard structure of what it means to live by faith. When we were miraculously by new birth and God's sovereign will brought to him and faith showed up, it's not like now we're off to some other way to live before God. It is that same faith. Like Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ in me, the life I live. Now I live by faith every day in the Son of God, meaning trust in God's word and what he is said to me. So, God's promises are true. Therefore, the text says, live this way. And our obedience, it, it, it is the measure of our faith at that moment. Our trust in God's promises. So, let's go back to it again. Start with verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Okay, there's the command. That's what faith does. It fights for contentment at the moment. But don't miss it. It doesn't just say then, like Nike, just do it. Never leaves us like that. God's commands, He never leaves us like, do it. He grounds it. That's the next word. For. See it? Gar in Greek. For. In other words, because. Be content with what you have. Because God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The way to be free from the worship or the love of money and to be content and happy in God is to know and to believe and to be satisfied by the promises that God has made that are summed up in that sentence. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Picture. You know where it comes from, don't you? Joshua, Moses is dead. You're in charge. You're the general. Lead Israel over the Jordan. And there's a lot of battles before you. And Joshua, 
as I was with Moses, I'll be with you. I will never leave you. Therefore, obey me. Go. Do you believe? That's the question to all of us every day we wake up. Every day, as the Hebrew writer says, today is the day of salvation. Every day is, do you believe that promise? Do you believe it? See, at the moment we do, and many of we know this, we've experienced this. At that moment that we do, no matter what storms are brewing around us that would cause discontent, we find ourselves coming into a contentment at the moment and to the extent we commune with God by the Spirit, over that promise. I'll never leave you. Contentment comes. Circumstance hasn't changed. You see it? He's saying, if it is true that because of Christ, God will never leave or forsake me, even in this circumstance, then I don't need to be desperate for money in the way that an alcoholic is desperate for booze as the source, in other words, of my Contentment. Now, we've started chapter 1, verse 1, and been working our way through the book of Hebrews. So, don't lose the context. This, this doesn't just float in the air all by itself. Re remember what He has already told us is foundational to that promise. In the last days, God has spoken to us through His Son. The exact imprint of God's very nature. Eternal. God Himself. Become a human being. Just like us. In order to, as the high priest, offer Himself up on the altar of the cross. To bear the wrath of God for us. And the Father poured out that wrath upon him as Jesus then cried out on the cross my God my God why have you forsaken me there's an answer to the question of Psalm 22 and what Jesus cried the answer is for you for every believer that's why the father forsook him on the cross. He was forsaken on your behalf. Therefore, lover of Jesus, He will never, ever leave you or forsake you. As Paul cried out in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for all of us. Logic is here. How is it any other way than he will absolutely give us all things freely? And so Jesus speaks as the resurrected, ascended high priest. Keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. For Yahweh has said, that is Jesus' name above all names given to Him, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He doesn't promise wealth. He doesn't promise freedom from bills, but He promises a heart of contentment.
in Him. He promises to be there for you. Therefore, you can be content. You can be, no matter the circumstances, free from worshiping mammon, money, and the world because of His words. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm right there in this trial. And that truth, that reality hitting a born-again heart of faith will produce contentment. When faith is, is, is fanned aflame by God's promise of His caring for you. When that happens, what's the result in a Christian's life? It's right there, the next verse. He tells us the result. Verse 6. That's why it begins with the word so, or really, so that. Hosta in the Greek. It's a result clause. Here's the result of the experience of that contentment because of faith in God's promise. So that we confidently say, and the circumstance hadn't changed, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Do you see what faith believes? Do you see how he tells us faith thinks? It's aroused by the truth that says, if God is really there for me, then man, then governments, then the economy is not the ultimate shaper of my future. That's what faith believes. God is. That's why he says. It's rhetorical. As he quotes Psalm 118. What can man do to me? Meaning nothing. To which you might respond. Oh really? Man can do all kinds of things to us. They can steal from you. Your stuff. They can evict you because you haven't paid your rent. They can foreclose on your, on your home. They can slander you. If you choose to say, now nah, we're done, we're opening up our church during these draconian shutdowns in Canada, they could throw you in jail. They can kill you. That's what man can do. And he knows that when he says this. Remember the larger context. Back to chapter 11 and 12, up into chapter 13. He's given illustrations of this. Remember the faith chapter? Illustrations of, of God's actually bringing what we would make us happy in deliverance during the temporal life. He absolutely does that like this. Women receive back their dead by resurrection, remember Elijah and Elisha. And then he goes on and says, and some, because of their faith, were tortured. Refusing to accept release so that they might have a better resurrection. Others, because of their faith, suffered mocking the hands of men and flogging the hands of men, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats. Destitute. Afflicted. Ill-treated. And all of those persons, and though they were commended, through their faith, they did not receive in their temporal life what was promised. And then remember in chapter 12, 
the author made crystal clear that Christians may suffer painful discipline from their father through the hands of men. And right here in chapter 13, if you just look up two verses, he just said, verse 3, remember those who are in prison. He means fellow Christians there who are in prison because of their Christianity. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, the hands of men, since you also are in the body. So the writer is very aware that in one sense, man can do a lot to hurt us. So, when he says, we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? What does he mean? Man can put me in prison. He can ill treat me. He can kill me. So the question is, in the writer's mind, why does the promise of verse 5, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Why does that cause the writer to feel such confidence and fearlessness? So we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? He's already given the answer in this book. We'll glance at it again. In short, his answer is he knows that man, government, nothing in this temporal world that is not God, it can do nothing that God does not design for our holiness and our peace. Remember, let me give you a taste, chapter 12, when he wrote, starting in, in, in verse 7, Dear believers, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And trust me, you want discipline, not wrath. For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, our heavenly father, disciplines us for our good in order that we may share his holiness. Yes, for the moment, in circumstances down here, for the moment, all discipline seems painful, because it is, rather than pleasant, because it's not pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the writer has already said this. He's already thrown that reality into the hopper when he gets to our passage this morning. And remember what he said in chapter 10, for you had compassion on those in prison, fellow Christians, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. They stole your stuff away because of your Christianity. But why would, did you joyfully accept it? Because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession an abiding eternal one. His whole point is, faith understands the infinite value of the gospel and what it promises. Our better possession, abiding, unending one. That's why he said in chapter 10, faith says, so what? if because of my faithfulness to Christ, they plunder and steal my possessions. God is on my side. He will never leave me, nor forsake me. What can man do to me? Answer, man can't do anything 
that doesn't lead to everlasting joy in God for all who are in Christ. If you've come to the truth of the gospel of Jesus, that God is the ultimate object of true contentment, true joy, true fulfillment, then you will exclaim with the psalmist in Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides in comparison with you. My flesh and my heart, they may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And he's my portion forever. Or the Apostle Paul, he, he sums up our text in his own words this way. And you know it from Romans 8. All based on the cross because the Father did not spare His Son. He'll freely give us all things. And so Paul then says, let's put it in real life context. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine? or nakedness, or danger, or the sword. He doesn't mean God protects you from any of those experiences. He means none of those experiences can possibly separate the elect from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's his answer. Next verse. No, but in all these things, through all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I, Paul, Here's where his faith rests in the gospel. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else. He wants to cover everything that's not God. Nor anything else under all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What can man do to me? Nothing. The book of Hebrews is saying, the way in our daily fight to get free from the love of money and to find contentment with what we have at the moment is to know and to trust the truth. We're brought into contentment by becoming what He is drawing us to become. As He is growing our dependence, our faith in Him. Which means we come to see. You can't see what you don't look at and don't listen to. The Bible. Scripture. We see and we believe the promises of God. And it snaps the neck of the love of money, worry, and anxiety. Let me quote for a moment Randy Alcorn in his little book, The Treasure Principle. If you haven't read that little book, it's small, easy. Be good for your soul. Alcorn writes, I think of it in terms of a dot. So just picture a big board up here, big black dot. Okay. I think of it in terms of a dot and a line, and a big line coming out of that dot. Our lives have two phases one, a dot, the other, a line extending from that dot. Our present life on earth is the dot. It begins, it ends, it's brief. But from that dot extends a line that goes on forever. That line is eternity, which Christians will spend in the resurrection in the new heavens and new earth. Right now, we are all living in the dot. 
But what are we living for? The short-sighted person lives for the dot. The person with perspective lives for the line. This earth and my time here is the dot. My beloved bridegroom, the coming wedding, the great reunion in my eternal home, in the new heaven and new earth, they are all on the line. That is the essence of what it is to be a Christian. That is the essence of living by faith daily in Christ who loved me and gave himself up for me. So let me just close with two applications immediately to our lives. What does this mean? It means to go on the way you hopefully have been living. It means we're desperate to get with God over His words. Meaning, not merely perfunctory, we're desperate to draw near to God in the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit over the truth, over the gospel, in communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, over those future promises, to fight, to trust His promises. To break the power of all sin. To be content with what you have. Because we live in a time of trials and testing. And God is ultimately sovereign over that. 1 Peter 1. 2 Corinthians 1. God is working through what the devil and the world and our flesh are working against. God is working his goodness through those trials. By trusting his promises. That's the key to breaking all powers of sin, whether it's sexual or failing to love appropriately or serve or, or the sin of grumbling and discontent before God. But the reality is that we're constantly being tempted and thus we are desperate every day to commune prayerfully with God over the truth of God. And finally, that's why the book of Hebrews, its centerpiece throughout this whole sermon that he wrote, is that we are not to battle this fight alone. The centerpiece of this whole book is way back in chapter 3, in my opinion, verses 12 to 13. Where he says to the Hebrew Christians, take care, be careful, brothers, Christians, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But instead, practically, this is what you do. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's one of the reasons Jesus created the church, his body made up of individual members of it. That's why small groups and prayer groups and telephones and text messages and all of that, it is letting other believers into your life. It's crucial in the Christian life. The fight of faith. One day you're used pull that other fellow Christian up into the promises of God in the next week you're the one being pulled out because of God's sovereign grace of body life we need people 
in our lives to encourage us in Christ every day with the promises of God. All of us get overwhelmed at times with the storms and circumstances of life. And then the pleasures of the world, the dot, seduce us. Dead in our hearts to God as our treasure. And one of God's strategies for us is not Lone Ranger Christianity, but the community of believers caring for each other's souls with the word of God, the gospel, and prayer. And thus, together, we look to the word which says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said to you, not just Joshua, I'll never leave you, Joe. I'll never forsake you. And so we, His church, confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Nothing. Oh, Father, we thank You for such a depth of love which is rooted not in us, but rooted in the Holy Trinity, in your love for your glory, which you manifested in creation and redemption and putting forth your Son as a propitiation before the world was created so that you would be glorified in us whom you have given to Him and glorified in our journeys and walk down here by seeing taste of the fruit of this text. As we can look back and see how thus far the Lord has been utterly faithful. And He will be faithful today. And He'll be faithful forever. For nothing, no matter what comes, can separate us from your love. Because Jesus purchased it for us forever. Amen and amen. Let us stand and worship this great Savior.